Uh, my name is Brad. I'm the high school director here at the church. And uh, yeah, it's exciting for me to be up here this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah today. One of the most exciting stories, I think, in the entire Bible. Uh, if you hear me say that, most likely growing up, whether you have a church background or not, you know the story of Jonah. You've, you've heard it at some point. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at the not-so-famous part of the story of Jonah this morning. Um, the first three chapters are incredibly famous. The fourth chapter is not famous at all. And um, so we're going to look at that. I think it will shine a very different light on the story of Jonah. But this is one of those captivating Bible stories that most of the time you hear as a child growing up. Every children's Bible um, for sure includes the book of Jonah. But if you're like me, um, you only ever hear, like I said, the famous part of the story. So I grew up going to church. I'm actually a pastor's kid even. I don't ever recall hearing the fourth chapter of Jonah until I was like at Bible college, until I was, you know, 18 or whatever age you are and you go to college. I don't ever remember hearing it um, being talked about or anything. So, um, but here's how the story goes. I want to recap the entire book a little bit. Perhaps you're here today and you go, I've never heard of that guy at all. And so here's the overview. At the very beginning of the book, God calls Jonah to go to the great city of Nineveh, it says, and to preach against it because its wickedness had come up before God. It had become increasingly violent and wicked, and uh, verse 2 says it had come up, so it's increasing before God. And so God says, um, go there and preach against it. Nineveh was the capital city of the reigning Assyrian Empire at the time, a very prominent empire and a very prominent city. And so Nineveh's violence and corruption and wickedness is increasing, and God says to Jonah, I want you to go there. Now, even that was very interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, you see all kinds of prophets you know a lot of them, and God sends them. But most likely, throughout the Old Testament, most of the time, God is sending a prophet to his own people, to the Israelites, to sort of warn them of coming judgment. Hey, you've stopped following me. Your heart has gone after other gods, and you need to turn back to the Lord your God. But in this case, the Ninevites really have nothing to do with the Israelites at all. Very disconnected and so intriguing that we see here, we will see God's heart for this nation, for this city. And so he says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah, of course, um, runs in the opposite direction. And we're not exactly sure why. We'll see uh, hints of this in chapter 4, that he perhaps knew that God would um, relent if Jonah preached to them, if Jonah gave them, or if God gave them a second chance. And maybe uh, the Ninevites were enemies of the Israelites, and Jonah sort of wanted to see them wiped out. We see glimpses of that. But for whatever reason, he runs away. He flees from the Lord, and he gets on the ship, you've maybe heard this before, goes to Tarshish. And so the Lord sends a great storm upon the ship. Everyone on the ship begins to panic. They find that Jonah is the one responsible. Jonah even eventually says, yeah, this is probably why I'm running from the Lord. And so he tells them to throw them into the sea. It actually wasn't the, the ship's responsibility. He says, throw me into the sea. In fact, they actually try not to do that. It says instead, the men did their best to row back, against, uh, back to land. But the, the storm grew wilder. And so they throw him overboard. And uh, it says the Lord provided a huge fish. Actually, doesn't, the text actually doesn't say whale, although very likely it was a whale. What other kind of big fish is there? But a huge fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah is alive in the belly of this great fish. It says for three days and for three nights. And in the belly of this fish, he basically repents for running from God. And we see this prayer in chapter 2. And it's awesome. But so then the Lord commands the fish to vomit up Jonah on dry ground. And the fish does, beginning of chapter 3. Here's, this is not in my notes. You know what's crazy about this book? You see God's sovereignty throughout this entire book. The way the Lord orchestrates all this stuff. Jonah runs. This storm, it says, um, was sent by God. This uh, end of 
chapter 1, it says this huge fish, the Lord provided a huge fish. Isn't that funny? Like, sometimes you're in the midst of like some crazy storm, and I know I'm allegorizing this. God may provide for you by a huge fish, and you're just swallowed up. Like sometimes, anyway, that's comical to me. The Lord provided. And then the Lord, uh, where is it? The Lord commanded the fish to vomit, and the fish did. Just how God is orchestrating all of this. We see more of this in chapter 4. And so he tells Jonah a second time, go to the city of Nineveh. And preach to it, proclaim the message I gave you. And so this time Jonah does. And lo and behold, the entire city of Nineveh, all of them, from the least to the greatest, listen to Jonah. And they repent. And they fast and they put on sackcloth as a symbol of their repentance. And God relents because the people repent. God relents. He's merciful and he does not give them what their deeds had deserved. But that's not quite the end of the story, right? I said that's sort of where our children's Bibles a lot of times end, and that for most of us, that's where the story ends. And yet there's still chapter 4. And so I want to read chapter 4 this morning um, in its entirety. It's not that long, but I'm giving you a whole overview of the, of the whole book. So if you want to follow along, if you have a Bible or an app, go ahead and do that, but it'll be on the screens. So God has just relented, and uh, Jonah doesn't like this very much. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew it. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out. And sat down at a place east of the city, and there had, he made a shelter for himself, made himself a, self, a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I love this. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Now, we learn in English 101 that every story has a protagonist and an antagonist, right? So I'm going to start with that question this morning. In this story, who's the protagonist and who's the antagonist? At the end of the story here, we finally see that Jonah is not, in fact, the protagonist. He's sort of not the good guy. And the great fish isn't the protagonist. It all really comes down to this final question. God ends the book by saying, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? Now, the word concern here in the Hebrew really means, it means to be moved with pity or compassion. Concern is a great translation, that's fine, but it's really loving concern. Some translations even say, should I not have compassion? Should I not have pity on the great city of Nineveh? God says, should I not love that city? And it's an argumentative question. He's sort of throwing this out to Jonah. See, here's what the story of Jonah is really about. It's really about God, who's the protagonist, seeking to bring grace and love and mercy to a big city. 
And the antagonist, at least here at the end of the book, is Jonah and people like him. Religious, moral people who believe in God and even who obey his commandments. For many of us in the room here today, including myself, it's us. It's us because what else are we sometimes? Most of the time, many times in fact, we can be city-disdaining, self-righteous, religious people, right? Who really don't have much of a heart for people who don't believe like we believe. Who people, for people who look different than us, for people who uh, act different than us, for people who just we don't like and who probably don't like us. We don't have much of a heart for them. We are the antagonist, and God is the protagonist. And the story of Jonah is really about God's love for a big, unbelieving, unjust, violent pagan city. Now, next week, we are launching into four huge Sundays for Brookside. Exciting Sundays. I'm really looking forward to this. We are officially launching this For the City initiative. You've probably heard us talk about that some of the past weeks. And uh, it will take four weeks to unpack. However, the initiative itself will go on much longer this whole school year and, and beyond that even. But before we get there, before we launch into that next week, I think this is so relevant this morning. This morning, as we come to this story of Jonah and God and the city of Nineveh, I want to ask this question. What What should our relationship be to our city? How do we approach the city and the people of the city all around us? Okay, that's my question this morning. So there are three things I think we see here in Jonah 4, and they're this. Very, very simple this morning. We see, first of all, that God sends us to the city. Secondly, why God sends us to the city, and then how God sends us to the city. So all three of these. First of all, the first thing we see is just simply the fact that God sends us to the city. The thing that unites this book together is that three times, three times God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Now, I used to think it was just two times. I think all, if I would have studied this, I would have said, no, it's really just twice. But as I studied the book this week, I noticed there's actually a third time. So chapter one, right at the beginning of the book, God sends, says, go to, go to the city of Nineveh. And then secondly, in chapter three, right after the fish incident, God says again, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and preach the message. But then finally, he says this. It's really at the end of chapter 4 that I just read. He ends the book with this question, but he essentially says, I want you to go to this city, and I want you to love it. I want you to show compassion for this wicked, corrupt city. Now, even I love the fact that the book just ends with that question. We get no resolution as to what actually happens to Jonah, But I think God ends with this question. It's sort of like he throws it out there for Jonah, but really for us. And then the story just ends. Now here's something else maybe significant. You see, notice as well, where did God call Jonah from? We don't get a lot of insight as to where Jonah's home was, but he most likely was an Israelite. He references his home at the beginning of chapter 4. But most certainly, Jonah was called out of a safe place, out of a comfortable place, where everyone probably looked like him and believed like he did. And God calls him to a city full of danger and full of diversity, where people were not like him at all. And again, he does not have a heart for these people. He doesn't care about them. So I'll get back to Jonah, but what is God saying here to us? Because I think he's sending us as well. He's sending us to go to the city. We are to be sent. He says, go to the city. But not just to Jonah. Again, that last question, he leaves that for us as well. Now maybe you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, don't, you know, don't don't so quickly apply that. Are you generalizing this, Brad? Jonah was a prophet of God. 
God had a plan, a particular plan for his life. And so isn't this sort of just God's plan to Jonah? Like God is not necessarily calling us to have a heart for the city, is he? It's a good question. I think we have to have a balance here. I think we need to look at the rest of Scripture because this is by no means a unique kind of calling in the Bible. Now, I have just two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New, but a few centuries after this, the Israelites were captured by Babylon, the great empire of Babylon. And they were taken to the area of Babylon before they entered into the city, and the exiles were sort of wrestling with how to interact with the city. And most of them were saying, let's stay outside of the city. We need to stay outside of the the moral and cultural pollution of, again, another vile, uh, corrupt, wicked city. But shockingly, God writes the Israelites a letter. And we get to read, we get to, we get to hear what God says to them through the prophet Jeremiah. We read this in Jer- Jeremiah 29. Uh, at one point, God actually says to the Israelites, he says, go move into this city. Be a blessing to this city. Here's exactly what Jeremiah says. It'll be on the screens as well. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. But then this is significant. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's really interesting. God says to the Israelites, engage the city. Work for the prosperity of this city. Bring the goodness of God and the gospel into this city, even though your exile is there. So that's one example. And then look, from the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, and if you think about the, the earliest missionaries, especially Paul and his companions, but really all of the earliest missionaries, when they were sent out, they were completely urban-centric. When they would go into any region, they would go to the biggest cities first. They ignored the countryside. They ignored the villages. And so here was the result. And in fact, by the year 300 AD, 50%, 50% of the cities in the Greco-Roman world were Christians. But they went to the cities. Why? Because this, because as the cities go, so goes the culture, right? As the city goes, so goes the society. We sort of get that. Now, these are just two examples and yet we do have to put this beside the fact that there, at times, were also individuals in the Bible uh, who stayed away from the cities. For example, in Genesis 13, you have Lot and Abram. Both were sort of sent by God, called by God to go forth. But Lot chooses to go to the east and heads down toward the city of Sodom, eventually gets sort of caught up in the wickedness of it. And Abram stays outside of the city and is much safer and sort of walks with God as a rural man, as a wanderer. But so to be balanced, what do, we, what do we take from all of this? So simply this, not all Christians are called to live in the city. We see, we see no command for that in the scriptures. But as a rule, perhaps as a general rule, the church, capital C, the church, sort of institutional church, if you will, although I don't love that term, is clearly called by God to use its power and its energy and resources whenever possible to take up a place in the urban centers and cities of a nation, to seek the peace and prosperity of the city, and to engage the city. So that's point one, the simple fact that God sends us to the city. But secondly, why does God send us to the city? Well, I think there are two reasons we see here. I'm going to put it like this. There's a head reason and there's a heart reason. And both, I think, are important to consider. First of all, the head reason is, 
every time God calls Jonah to the city of Nineveh, he doesn't say just go to the city of Nineveh. Did you catch this? He says go to the great city of Nineveh. And so the Hebrew word that's used here, it's translated great, just like the English word great, sort of has a a lexical range, really has two meanings. Well, great can mean a lot of things, right? But two things primarily. On one hand, it means big, large, means lots of people, means large city, uh, great in magnitude and extent. We sort of read about that in chapter 3. It took three days to get through the whole city. On the other hand, the word also means important, right? The city was great because it was important. So it's large, yes, lots of people, but it's also important. It's influential. And so what God is saying here is, I think he's saying, go to, I want you to go to, to the strategic places. I want you to go where there's influence. Yes, go to where there's people, and that's important too, but also go where there's influence. And so in many ways, this should be common sense for us. If we have a message, the gospel, that we believe with all of our hearts, but that many people are blind to, and if we believe that contained within the gospel, the beauty and joy and the strength and peace and satisfaction that everybody everywhere is looking for, whether they realize it or not, they would love to hear that message. If you and I have that message ourselves and we truly believe that that's what the gospel contains, what are we supposed to do with that message? Do we just keep it to ourselves and cherish it, sort of play with it in a corner, just, just hold on to it, not share it with anybody else, hide it under a bushel? As the song says, no. No, we don't do that. How dare we do that? We need to take the message to the city. Well, why don't we go to the city? It's where the people are. It's where the most people are. Because in the villages, you might reach individuals, but in the city, you reach the culture, right? In the village, you might reach an artist, but in the city, you change art culture. In the village, you might reach a lawyer, but in the city, you reach the entire legal system. So that's the head reason was already mentioned earlier, as the city goes, so goes the whole society. But then there's also a heart reason, and it's intriguing. See, at the end of the story here in chapter 4, Jonah doesn't want to be in the city anymore. He leaves the city. You see that? Look at verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. See what he does? He, he's like, I'm out of here. And so he goes outside of the city, and he's still hoping that God might change his mind and give these people what they deserve because, quite frankly, he thought they deserved it. And so he leaves and he sets up this shelter for himself. And at some point, apparently, uh, Jonah's shelter maybe wasn't sort of cutting it anymore. I'm not sure exactly why God sends this vine. So he has a shelter, but then it also says, verse 6, the Lord provided this leafy plant. Isn't this odd? Like, doesn't just this sound so weird? I'm picturing him in the desert. But the Lord provides this leafy plant, grows up quickly. Um, it says it, to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Now, there actually are plants like this, apparently, that can grow up quickly, and um, big leaves, and I didn't do a lot of research on it, and don't necessarily need to, but these plants do exist. And it says Jonah was very happy about the plant, of course, right? I mean, so why not? He's outside of the city, he's sort of had, he's comfortable, there's green, he's in the shade, um, he's getting some much-needed R&R after all of his preaching, and he just sort of is sitting there in his comfort, hoping that God will still destroy this city. But at the end of the chapter, again, verses 10 and 11, which I think are the most of, just the most important verses in the entire book, the Lord says to Jonah, you have been concerned. Again, you, Jonah, you have compassion. You, you care. You have concern about this plant. 
though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many animals also? Look at what God's saying here. This is, look at the logic God is using with Jonah. It's very emotional. He's saying, Jonah, look, 120,000 people who don't know which way to turn spiritually. Jonah, look at the size. Look at the magnitude of this city. Jonah, don't you care about people? But of course, that's not all he's saying. God is comparing his own heart for this city with Jonah's heart for this plant. He's saying, Jonah, take a look at your own heart. Jonah, you are finally concerned about something perishing, but ironically, it's the stupid plant. Maybe you don't like the word stupid. It's this dumb plant. It's almost as if God provides the whole plant thing as like an object lesson for Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, get with it. You're really concerned about this plant, not this entire huge city of people. What are you doing, Jonah? I once heard an inner city pastor, a guy named Bill Crispin, put it this way when asked why he continues to minister in the inner city, why he felt like that was sort of the most prominent place to do that. He said this, and this is sort of comical. He says, in the country you have more plants than people, and in the city you have more people than plants, and since God loves people far more than plants, he loves the city far more than the country. Now, you may be like, oh, come on. You know, some of you live in the city or live in the country and you love the country. and There's nothing wrong with that. Um, more power to you. But this is exactly what God is saying here. He's saying, look per square inch or whatever, per square foot, per square mile. Look at the amount of city or people that are in the city. Yes, trees are beautiful. Yes, we should take care of trees and celebrate Arbor Day, especially in Nebraska because we're the home of Arbor Day. And God loves his creation. But whatever we do, whatever you believe about trees and plants and nature and God's creation, and I know he loves that stuff, you know deep down that trees are nowhere near as precious and as beautiful and as amazing as a human being. You know, a boulder's coming down a mountain, and then there's a tree and there's a human there, and someone says, like, what do they say, right? Save the tree. No. You save the person. Because people are precious to God, here's what God's really saying to Jonah. He's saying, Jonah, don't you care? Don't you care about these people? Don't you care that they perish? There is nothing more astounding, more precious, more amazing, more beautiful than a person. Look at the city. Every block, every building, every house, it's filled with the most beautiful thing on earth. And I am sending you to them. I am sending you to reach them. And so we say, yes, but isn't salvation of the Lord? Yes, salvation is purely of the Lord. We see that in chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation comes from the Lord. But God also says, I am using you. I am choosing, I'm choosing to use you. You are my messenger. You are a sent people. So why? Why does God send us to the city? Well, two reasons. Because cities are strategic. And because people are precious to God. Now, finally, how, how do we do this? How does God send us into the city? Where do we get the power to do this? How are we to go? You know, we're, we're busy people, all of us. I think we have enough on our plates, enough in our schedules. If I stopped and asked any one of you, are you busy? You'd go, oh, no doubt. I'm so, I'm so busy. And so you hear this and you say, Brad, I'm supposed to engage my city? Like, seriously? That sounds so completely overwhelming even just somewhat by the fact that it's so corporate. You know, you're not, if you talk individuals, I can start to grasp it. But engage my city? So how do we do this? Well, I think we need two things. We just need to see two things. And these are sort of overarching. 
the macro level. I think we could talk and we should talk more and more about how do we engage our city at the micro level, but two things. First of all, Jonah's opposite. We need to see Jonah's opposite. Now, what does that mean? Jonah goes outside of the city to condemn it, right? He leaves the city, he goes outside of the city, hoping that God will still destroy it. But there was another prophet, years later, a greater prophet, who went outside of the city, and we, we read about him in Hebrews chapter 13. The writer says this, And so Jesus also suffered outside of the city to make the people holy, how through his own blood. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We're looking forward to this future city, to God's great city. But here's what we have. Jonah went outside of the city that spared his life to condemn it. But Jesus was dragged outside of the city by force. And he died as a substitute for the city. He died for the city's salvation and not for its condemnation. You say, well, what difference does that make? Like I've heard that a thousand times, but what difference does that make? When you see him suffering for you, when you see him taking all of the punishment that your sins and that my sins deserve, all of your all of your crud, all of your brokenness, all of your mistakes, every single thing that you've done that is wrong, and he takes that on himself. And it's that great exchange where God looks at us and we have the righteousness of Christ if we're in Christ. Because he has taken all of our sin away, then we have nothing to fear in all of eternity. We have nothing to fear. We say with the psalmist, what can man do to me? That at the very least, we, should, we have no fear. We have a guarantee through Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit that we will never perish We will never taste death, as the Bible says. And so don't you see, we can now, with Jesus making us pure and innocent and spotless before the throne of God, we can offer that eternal kind of life to others, to everyone we encounter, without caring what they think about us. Of saying it's not just about heaven when you die, but it's about a different kind of life now. And you can partake in that. And it's not just becoming a a religious guru, a religious nut or something. This is real life. And you care about eternity. You're lot, we, we know that about people. And they want it and they need to hear it. So that's the first thing. We need to see Jonah's opposite. But secondly, we need to look at Jesus' commission. You see, Jesus, after he had been raised from the dead, when he first appeared to his disciples, just sort of showed up in the room, as John records it in his gospel. This was his commission to him. John 20, verse 21. Jesus shows up and says, peace be with you. But he says, as the Father has sent me, now I'm sending you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. But Jesus, how do we, how do, we do that? Okay, yes, but how do we do that? In the very next verse, it says Jesus breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. He equips us to do it. He gives us peace. He gives us the peace to say we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to care what others think. But he also gives us the Holy Spirit. This eternal helper that's constantly with us, but we must be willing to go. He's sending us, but we have to be willing to go. So the final great commission as well, Matthew 28. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. In which case I heard a pastor say anything that Jesus said after that statement should be taken really, really seriously. But he says this, therefore go. Go and make disciples, I am sending you. You say, Jesus, don't you need to do that? Yes, salvation is of the Lord, but I'm sending you. You're my messenger, both here and everywhere. So we were sent. So may we go and seek the peace and prosperity of our own city.
the city of Omaha, a really great city. And may we do it for his glory and for his renown. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this ancient text, for this ancient story. And yet, Father, we find here a a surprising message in the fourth chapter. That, God, we hear all about Jonah running and the the great fish and, and the people repenting. But, Lord, you have a heart for this city that even was not connected in any way to the Israelite people. And yet, God, you wanted to be merciful and compassionate to them. So you sent Jonah. And Lord, this morning we know that you're sending us. You're sending us into a dark world and to redeem and to reach our city and to seek the peace and prosperity of it. So God, equip us to go. God, give us words to use, to speak. God, give us actions. Help us to love and to serve all of those around us in our city. God, that we do it for your name and for your glory, that we'd create a great city as we one day look forward to the city of God. God, thanks. We need you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.